This episode of the Series A podcast is brought to you by the Blockchain Founders Fund. The Blockchain Founders Fund is a global entrepreneurship and investment fund that focuses on adding value to emerging technology and blockchain projects with real-world applications. The Blockchain Founders Fund supports seasoned and first-time entrepreneurs across the key business function with a hands-on intensive go-to-market venture program. Our second sponsor is SGI Partners based in New York City. SGI Partners is a private investment firm that pursues compelling investment opportunities in middle market businesses. SGI has a flexible mandate to invest across the capital structure in control-oriented investments, raising from strategic financing to buyouts, allowing us to implement innovative investment strategies that preserve invested capital and mitigate risk while driving growth and creating value. As an, inv- as an advisor to SGI partners, I help identify investment targets in my geographical area. Now on to this fantastic new episode. So today I have the pleasure to uh, speak with Christian Olesen. Christian is a hedge fund manager uh, based in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, if that's correct, Christian. Um, the Olesen Value Fund is a 37 million uh, fund, hedge fund with an annualized return of 14.3, and it focuses in underfollowed small and micro cap companies and also in special complex or unusual situation and arbitrages. Uh, Christian, welcome to the Series A podcast. How are you doing this uh, morning? I'm great. Thank you, George. Uh, and uh, thanks very much for having me on the podcast. Um, so uh, let's uh, get started. A lot going on in the world. Uh, today is uh, Tuesday is the day after Elon Musk uh, bought uh, Twitter. Uh, if uh, if we can have like your uh, short comment on on that, I, if you are a Twitter yeah. user, I'm not sure. I I barely use Twitter at all. I I have an account. I'm I'm not sure I've ever tweeted anything. Um, I I got my my Twitter account years ago when I I was following the Knight Capital debacle back in 2012. So we actually had an investment in Knight and. And I remember uh, Charles Gasparino always seemed to have, have the inside scope on what was happening with Knight and, and he was releasing the information on Twitter. And so I was like, oh, I better get a Twitter account. And, um, uh, but actually I don't use Twitter very much at all. Um, it's uh, frankly, I don't really like the type of, um, you know, just, very short content, you know, I, I really, I, I like, you know, content with more substance. And um, so, so I, I, I do log in once in a while and, and see, you know, what people that I follow have to say, or people I know have to say. Um, and, you know, I, it's, it's very interesting. Elon Musk is, is a really smart guy. Um, he's a very unconventional thinker uh, and businessman has been very successful. Um, and uh, I, I honestly don't know, uh, you know, how his investment in Twitter is going to pan out. Uh, I think the stock is really expensive. And, um, 
like you know, many many technology stocks continue to be, in my opinion. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I don't know uh, how he's going to make it work financially, but you know, he's also said that he doesn't really care that much about the economics. Uh, so I think it's it's a good thing for free speech that uh, Elon Musk is going to own Twitter, and I'm I'm actually you know put a little bit of a smile on my face when I saw this. Um, uh, but um, you know how how it's going to work out for him as an investment. I I, I don't know. I, I would um, uh, question that. Talking about smart guys, uh, another one. Bill Gates is uh, sorting a big chunk of Tesla. Uh, do you have uh, Do you know what's going on over there? Why he's doing that? I don't know why. I mean, uh, you know. Um, I'm sure, well, I'm not sure I, I can imagine. It may not even be Bill Gates himself. It maybe it's one of his investment managers who is doing it. I don't even know, uh, to be honest. Uh, I, um, you know, Tesla stock, you know, is, is obviously also highly valued. And uh, I think if you view the stock, you know, from a value investor's perspective, I think you you have to realize that um, in order for the valuation to make sense, you know, the, the business has to do very, very well, and it might. Um, but um, may, maybe Bill Gates doesn't, uh, doesn't agree with that. But I, I'm, I don't know much about Bill Gates' thinking into this, I'm afraid. Fantastic. Uh, let's uh, take a step, step back. Uh, if you can uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, the hedge fund that you are uh, running? Yeah, um, so, um, you know, I guess I'll, I'll start from the beginning and, and please just interrupt me um, if, uh, if you want to take it in a different direction. But, um, you know, I'm, um, uh, I started the fund um, uh, more than 13 years ago, like more than 14 years, sorry, over 13 years ago, excuse me, um, with uh, money from friends and family, uh, as well as, as my own money. And I, I continue to have all of my own money in the fund. Um, the fund has, has grown over time and uh, it uh, continues to have an investor base of uh, primarily high net worth individuals, as well as a couple of family offices. Um, uh, let me let me go back to my background. I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question there. I'm I'm from Denmark. Uh, I came to the United States uh, when I was in college. I transferred to to Wharton undergrad. Um, after Wharton, I, I I started working uh, for a financial advisory firm. Uh, then I found my way to a um, uh, a broker dealer that focused uh, primarily on uh, high yield and distressed bonds, uh, primarily companies in bankruptcy. Um, after that, I, I, uh, I ended up in the hedge fund business. Um, I, um, you know, I think I had a great experience there, but um, I, I realized that um, you know, what I wanted to do was something uh, very different. I wanted to take a very different approach um, from what my employer was doing. And um, 
so I um, I started the fund. Um, what I realized I wanted to do is I you know I wanted to have the freedom to uh, you know spend a lot of time doing deep research on every company that I put in my portfolio. Uh, I just I don't like this approach of you know having a hundred or more companies in your portfolio, uh, and you probably know very little about each of them. Um, you know I th I think um, you know the key or one of the keys to generating great investment returns over the long run is to be uh, very familiar with. Um, every investment that you make um, and uh, I think investment returns. Um, so um, to uh, be able to uh, focus my time on a smaller number of investment opportunities, um, partly because I think you have to know what you invest in, you have to know it very well in order to have any hope of, of really outperforming the market over the long run. Uh, and uh, in addition, if you don't concentrate your capital in your best ideas to, to a significant extent, you really have no chance of, uh, of generating great investment returns over the long run. Uh, so I think that that's one of the things uh, that, that Wall Street you know, tends to get wrong. Um, and um, I, I wanted to um, to do it a different way. I think that that was maybe the single biggest thing. There were many other things as well. You know, I, you know, I'm a value investor, as as the name of my fund, Olson Value Fund, suggests. Um, and um, and I, I I thought that I needed to have the freedom uh, to uh, you know to really pursue that. So uh, let's touch on this point, uh, Christian, Christian, if you can uh, explain in your words, what is uh, the meaning of value investor? Yeah, so this is uh, it's a definition that uh, um, I, I think people uh, don't really understand it very well. Um, and, and I think people misuse the term, especially when people um, create the distinction between growth and value, which I think is a false alternative. Um, so really value investing is, is really just, um, I would say it's uh, regarding stocks or other securities as ownership stakes in real businesses, as opposed to just numbers on a computer screen. Um, and, um, uh, with that, you know, uh, you know, you uh, if if you look at a business that way, uh, or if you look at an investment that way, then um, I, I think um, you know you will focus on you know what the business can generate for you in terms of profits in cash flow, and you compare that to how much you have to pay for the business. And value investing is really just uh, the practice of um, identifying uh, businesses uh, that have an in so-called intrinsic value as, as Benjamin Graham, who's, who's uh, sort of the, the father of value investing, 
uh, called it uh, an intrinsic value, which is basically, you know, the, the discounted value of all future cash flows generated by the business, you know, stated in a sort of conceptual way. Um, you know, when you can buy a business uh, at a price that is significantly below the intrinsic value, uh, that's value investing. Uh, so it's essentially, you know, buying something that you think is worth a dollar for 50 cents, 75 cents or whatever. Um, that's really essentially what it is. Um, now, you know, value investors uh, tend to focus on businesses that are, you know, relatively easy to value. And that often means eschewing growth companies or um, technology companies or, you know, companies with uh, relatively immature business models because they're more difficult to value. Um, and, uh, but in principle, you know, there's, um, you know, that, that's not, you know, uh, that's, that's not essential to value investing. Um, so but, uh, are you avoiding these kind of businesses? Did I get that right? Um, not categorically, no. Uh, I'm just trying to explain, you know, what's, you know, how do I see value investing? But I think it is true that it is very difficult to value uh, you know, what we call growth companies or startup companies or, you know, companies with relatively immature business models. Um, and, um, but you know what, I think there are many ways of making money. I think you can make money by investing in, uh, in startup companies, mature companies, growth companies, even companies in decline. Uh, I think the insight that value investing gives us is that you know as long as you are paying less than whatever the intrinsic value is of what you're investing in then you can generate and i think you will generate superior investment results over the long run how often do you make an investment oh it uh it's hard to say i mean so you know i will typically have 10 to 20 investments in my portfolio. Um, and, you know, the average holding period is uh, certainly well in excess of a year, but it, this really varies uh, pretty significantly. Um, I'll, so, you know, may, maybe it's helpful if I sort of tell you about the types of investments that we make and, you know, cause then you, you can see how the, the holding period uh, and the investment frequency differs depending on which type of investment we're talking about. So I, I uh, focus on three uh, different types of investments. So one is small and micro caps that are neglected by Wall Street. Uh, and as a result, um, they, they tend to be uh, mispriced. Uh, the second category is companies and industries that are out of favor for some non-rational reason. It could be a behavioral, in other words, a psychological reason, or it could be some sort of technical or institutional type of reason. And this could be any market cap size. 
And the final category is, is what I call uh, special situations and arbitrages. Uh, this could be anything from uh, merger risk arbitrage, where there's some sort of unusual aspect, such as a stub that's being spun off in connection with the transaction, or it could just be that it's a very tiny company that's being bought out and hence the, the risk ARB hedge funds are, are not focusing on it. Or it could be a very unusual type of security like a contingent value rights or auction rate preferred security or what have you, just anything that's, that's really unusual. And as a result is uh, uh, misvalued either because it's uh, complex and, and not well understood or because a lot of investors are just not uh, able to, to invest in this type of uh, security or situation. Now, this last category, um, uh, you know, these tend to be uh, shorter term investments. Uh, for instance, um, um, uh, last year, uh, around the middle of last year, I invested in um, an oil and gas royalty trust called the Whiting USA Trust II, uh, which was scheduled to be liquidated uh, at the end of, of the year. Um, and um, uh, this was essentially an arbitrage uh, in oil. So you could basically buy oil by buying shares in this trust uh, at, at a bargain price. Uh, and at the same time, you could short crude oil futures uh, and thereby more or less lock in, you know, a, a quote unquote arbitrage profits uh, between, you know, what you are paying for the oil indirectly by buying shares in, in the royalty trust and, and the price that you were locking in by, by selling the oil futures. Uh, so in this case, um, you know, the investment holding period was, was pretty short because this trust was coming to, to the end of its, um, of its life. Um, but you know, most of my investments uh, are much, much longer lived, um, you know, certainly well in excess of a year. But you know, George, I, I often will add to uh, an investment if it becomes cheaper uh, and then if it becomes less cheap, then I'll reduce the size of the investment, you know, based on the logic that, you know, the cheaper it is, the more attractive it is, and therefore the more money I would want to have invested in it. And the reverse also holds true, you know, if an investment becomes less undervalued, you know, I wouldn't want to have as big of uh, uh, an investment in it. And at some point I would, I would sell it completely, of course. So, you know, because of this, you know, there is always some buying and selling that's going on in our portfolios. It's, it's hard to, to answer the question very precisely. Um, uh, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of opportunities that are, are given by what, um, you know, I've, I'll return to, uh, to a term that Ben Graham uh, came up with uh, uh, called Mr. Market. Um, and, and Mr. Market is, is basically a, um, um, a representation of, you know, the, the stock market. Um, you know, if you look at almost any stock and you look at its 52-week 
high-low range, you'll see that um, the range for you know 90, 95% of all stocks is is significantly wider than um, than you know a a rational analysis of you know what the change in the underlying intrinsic value of the business might have might have changed by over a 52 week period. And, um, um, and this is true even of, you know, large, mature, relatively stable businesses. And this gives rise to lots of opportunities to, um, you know, take advantage of Mr. Markets, you know, when he's depressed and uh, a, an investment is selling at a very undervalued price and to, Again, take advantage when he's uh, euphoric and, and the stock is selling at a much, much uh, higher valuation. So because of this, you know, we always have uh, some adjustment of position sizes in the portfolio. Are all your investments in the form of, of a stock or a bond, which is listed in some sort of uh, stock exchange uh, in the United States or around the world? Um, almost, I mean, um, a lot of, you know, I would say most of the small and micro cap, especially the micro cap investments tend to be traded over the counter or, or possibly in the pink sheets. Uh, some of them are listed on a stock exchange, but, but yeah, they're all publicly traded securities. Um, so you are referring to penny stocks? Uh, yeah, it could be penny stocks. Uh, well, uh, I guess I'm, I'm not sure how you define penny stocks. Uh, less I, less I than one dollar. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Uh, I mean, the, the oil trust that I just mentioned as an example before, um, that, that traded below one dollar uh, per share. Uh, yeah, mo most of them do not, but uh, but 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 some of them do. Yes. Uh, let's talk about compounding uh, returns and the consistency of returns. Uh, yeah. Of course, another important uh, thing is mitigating risk. If yeah. you can uh, talk about these uh, important uh, aspects of your uh, occupation. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a really key for for investors to understand. Um, so the way that I define risk is risk is a permanent loss of capital. It's not a fluctuation in the market value of your investment. Uh, so you know, if a stock goes down but the intrinsic value is unaffected. Uh, there's a decline in the market value of your investment, but there isn't necessarily uh, a, a permanent loss of capital. If you sell it uh, and you lock in the loss, then it is a permanent loss of capital. Um, and I think this is, uh, this is very important to, to understand. Um, uh, I think any investor uh, uh, needs to uh, be able to tolerate volatility in, in the market value of their investments in order to be successful over the long term, because volatility is inevitable. 
as we all know. And, um, you know, this sort of goes back to, uh, to Mr. Market, who I was talking about before. Um, uh, you know, Mr. Market uh, is usually either euphoric or dep depressed, you know, and, and your job as an investor to a large extent really consists of uh, ignoring uh, the factors that cause Mr. Market to be either euphoric or depressed. Um, and, you know, frankly, the best way for most investors to do that is to, uh, um, I think, is to, to have an investment uh, strategy that does not require them to, um, to constantly monitor their investments so that they can, you know, focus on more important things in their life uh, if they're not professional investors. And, and maybe uh, equally importantly to, uh, you know, not, um, not, you know, be affected by these same forces that, that caused Mr. Market to uh, mood to swing, uh, you know, so as not to sell at exactly the wrong time or, or buy at exactly the wrong time, um, like most people do probably. Um, so I, I think this is really fundamental to uh, to successful long-term investing, and um, you know, as um, you know, as a professional investor, I'm, I'm you know, obviously I, you know, I'm I, I deal with um, you know the the flow of information that that causes you know the the fluctuations in in the markets all the time. Some of which are uh, justified and some of which are not and um you know my my job uh is to um to sort out you know what's um you know you know what developments you know have caused a, a real change in the in the intrinsic value of my investments or my uh prospective investments and which ones uh are really just noise which actually give rise to opportunities to say buy uh, a good business uh, when it's temporarily out of favor. Um, so I think this is this is this is uh, central, you know, both from a risk management perspective, but also you know for professional investors in terms of identifying opportunities. And you know this this goes back again to what I, I was talking about before with you know the the 52 week high low range that you'll see in, in virtually any stock, you know, it's much wider than, than, you know, than it rationally should be. And, um, and this is, this is really the source of, of many, many uh, great investment opportunities. Do you make use of any uh, software to identify opportunities? Um, so as you said, I mean, there are thousands of stocks and all of them have 52 highs and lows. Is it something that you do um, by reading, uh, you know, the websites or uh, are there any tools that help you identify uh, such uh, opportunities? Yeah, I would. So, uh, you know, there are, there are some good tools uh, available uh, mostly in terms of, you know, acquiring and, 
um, sort of analyzing and retrieving information. Uh, I use a Bloomberg terminal. Um, it's expensive, so it's not you know a good option uh, unless you you are you know a full time investor with uh, you know a significant working with a significant capital base. Um, but um, you know the the way in which you acquire the information is is not the most important thing. It's uh, you know. Uh, you still have to choose, you know, what you focus on. Um, you still have to to understand and interpret uh, the data that you're getting. So, uh, yeah, good tools are important, but uh, that's just a small part of the picture. Uh, I, you know, I would say the other thing that I would say is important is, you know, I, you know, I, I you know, look at SEC filings on the SEC's website, on the Edgar website, and and when I invest in foreign companies, it could be you know on the stock exchange or uh, you know some other websites. So besides the fundamentals and the intrinsic value of uh, each uh, potential target, do you also look at uh, the technical analysis of the stocks? Um, I wouldn't say I look at the technical analysis. No, I, I would say I consider catalysts uh, for stocks, um, but, but catalysts are secondary to, to value. Intrinsic value is, uh, is, is clearly the primary uh, determinant of, you know, of my uh, investment decisions, uh, the, the primary driver, um, you know, catalysts. Uh, you know, can also be pretty important, and especially with this uh, special situations and arbitrages uh, that I mentioned. Uh, there, you'll often have a like a hard catalyst, like a, a company that's being liquidated. For instance, you know, once the liquidation is complete, you get the money back. You know, uh, so you know that you'll get your return. You know, uh, at the latest. You know, by by that time. Uh, as is an example, but uh, I don't do what you know what people really call technical analysis. In terms of blue chips and uh, the companies with huge valuations, um, aren't they uh, safe bets, uh, or you tend to stay away from them uh, because you prefer the uh, micro cap? Um, so I think you know uh, blue chip stocks can certainly be be excellent investments and 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 they do actually fit under the second category that I, I talked about earlier, which is companies and industries that are out of favor for some non-rational reason, which could include micro caps, small caps, mid caps, or large caps. And you know we have invested in in some. I would say certainly you know blue chips. Uh, tend to be pretty high quality businesses. Um, you know, they don't all have the best growth prospects. Um, uh, and of course, um, uh, they are usually not overlooked the way that micro caps can be, uh, which means that um, they're, you know, they're less likely to be mispriced in the market, you know, the, the market is uh, is more efficient or maybe you should say less inefficient in, in large caps than it is in, in small and micro caps. But um, in principle, 
uh, large caps can be excellent investments, just like companies of, of any other size, really. Uh, I think what's the only thing that really matters is uh, how much are you paying relative to what it's really worth? In other words, the intrinsic value of the business. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I'll give you um, an example. You know, we, you know, uh, you know, back in, um, you know, the early years after the financial crisis, uh, like I think around 2011, we bought uh, Henkel, which is um, a European large cap. It's best known for its um, uh, for Purcell, um, and but it's uh, it's actually uh, the largest um, industrial adhesives company in the world. Uh, excellent, high quality company with a great balance sheet. And um, um, uh, margins that were somewhat subpar, but which the uh, the CEO at the time uh, was, um, you know, uh, in the middle of bringing up to uh, up to, you know, the same level as their peers, and we bought it, I think, for ten and a half times trailing net income, uh, which is you know, a very inexpensive price to pay for, you know, a, um, you know, an excellent business with expanding margins. Um, and, and we made an excellent return on it. Um, and there, there have been other examples like that uh, in our portfolio. But unfortunately, today, uh, I, I think the markets in general, and this is true generally of large caps as well as smaller caps, although with small and micro caps, you find exceptions, but I think the market in general is very expensive today. And um, there are very, very few large caps uh, that, are, that are not expensive today, in my opinion, especially in the, in the United States. Uh, so I think, you know, yes, they may be safe uh, in terms of uh, the, the nature and the quality of the business, but it may not be a safe investment because you're paying such a high price for them. Um, I think, you know, if you look at the S&P 500 today, you know, you know, people say, oh, it's trading at 21 or 22 times earnings. But I, I think the way those earnings are uh, defined um, is, is, is misleading. You know, if you, um, uh, I think if you look at more sort of normalized mid-cycle earnings, the S&P 500 trades somewhere in the vicinity of 30 times earnings today. Um, so, so U.S. large caps are, are quite expensive. In fact, uh, it's roughly the same valuation levels that we had uh, in 1999 and 1929. Uh, and uh, so, no, I, I would not say that you are necessarily safe uh, buying blue chips. Um, uh, I think valuation really matters a lot. And you know, if you bought you know blue chips in 1999 or 1929, uh, your return for the next decade or two would have been quite poor. Uh, not because the businesses were were crappy, but because the price was too high. 
what is your uh, philosophy in terms of uh, spreading out the investments? For example, what is the largest uh, percentage of your portfolio for for the uh, largest investment you have made? Yeah, the biggest uh, investment uh, uh, I think would have been uh, uh, when we invested in a company called Manning and Napier, uh, which uh, we'd had a small position in it, but I, I made it a very, very big position uh, early in the pandemic uh, in you know March, April of 2020. Um, this was a um, uh, an asset manager and wealth manager, uh, a microcap company uh, traded in the United States. Um, in this case, um, uh, not only was the stock tremendously undervalued at that time, in my opinion, but I, I also thought it was a very, very safe investment. Uh, when we uh, bought the stock in um, uh, like March or so, March or April of 2020, it was trading at more than a 40% discount to um, basically the liquidation value of the company. And, and, and the assets primarily consisted just of cash or, or, or cash equivalents. Um, so, and, and the company was, uh, you know, had always been profitable. I don't think they'd ever had a quarter with negative net income uh, to the best of my recollection. Uh, so, you know, if you're buying a company that's always profitable and which, you know, given the nature of its business, it can always uh, reduce its costs, which are mostly, you know, uh, salaries and bonuses, uh, as an investment management company, uh, trading at more than a 40% discount to, to cash. Uh, uh, and in that case, um, you know, our uh, position in, in the stock grew, it, it got to about 30% of uh, Olison Value Fund's uh, assets Although at cost it was it was probably somewhere around twenty percent or so, but you know as the as the stock increased, uh, the um, the market value as a percentage of, of the fund's total assets increased and got up to to more than thirty percent. So uh, and that's very unusual. Normally I won't go that high. I mean ten to fifteen percent is is more typical. Um, uh, so. Um, um, uh, so I, I think um, you know, you know, most funds, you know, would never make an investment that's anywhere close to that large as a percentage of their assets. Um, uh, but I think you know, you, it's 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 actually not so hard to overdo diversification, and um, and like I said, you know, if you're if you're buying you know, a profitable company at, at a significant discount to its liquidation value. Uh, I don't think the risk is truly that great. Uh, so, um, um, so I, I think that made sense. And actually, we we ended up making a tremendous profits on on Manning and Napier. I think we made 
over 275% profits on the stock. And, and the, the average holding period wasn't a lot more than one year on that, uh, on that position. And it, uh, it, it really- um, Sounds like uh, it paid off. Yeah, yeah, we, we made a wonderful return on that. As we are reaching the end of this uh, fabulous conversation, um, you mentioned at the beginning that you have uh, your own funds as well in, in the fund. How important is it for your uh, LPs that you have your own skin on the game? And uh, what is your um, strategy on approaching uh, new capital? Uh, yeah, I think it. Uh, I think uh, many of my LPs uh, appreciate that you know they are investing their money right alongside my money. Uh, I don't have any investments at all except for my investment in Olson Value Fund, except for cash and you know assets held for personal use. Uh, I think it's it's really tremendously helpful. Uh, in terms of um, you know keeping your focus right where it should be, and aligning your interests both in terms of you know you know it gives me an incentive to generate great investment returns obviously, uh, and it gives me an incentive to uh, not take undue risks with our money, and uh, and really you know the way I see the fund is um, you know it's. You know, it's it's really the way that I would manage my own money because it it is the way I manage my own money, and um, I, I think it's it's extremely logical, and uh, and I think many of my investors appreciate that. Um, I'm sorry, what was your you had another question as well? Yeah, uh, how do you approach uh, new uh, limited uh, partners? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, I think uh, that what I will say is, um, you know, the fund is, is a good fit for investors who have a long-term time horizon, who can tolerate, you know, some volatility um, uh, and who share the, um, uh, you know, the view of risk as being permanent loss of capital, not volatility in the market value of, of your investments. Um, and so, um, you know, the fund is, is open to, to new capital. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think the best, uh, the best fit is, is when, when the investor has, uh, you know, the mindset about, uh, you know, uh, viewing risk as, as a permanent loss of capital, like like I just explained. Okay, uh, so Christian, I would like to thank you very much for uh, uh, enlightening us uh, about uh, the hedge fund uh, that you are running, and uh, we wish you all the best on your investments. Great, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on.